I so appreciate Moy and the rest of the team, the songs that they pick. I hope you know they're on purpose. Uh, even seeing a mighty fortress is our God when Martin Luther considered the enemies of the gospel that were on the rise in the time of the Reformation. They were everywhere surrounding him. And that's what we will see today in Nehemiah chapter 4. I've called this sermon, The Opposition Gets Personal. It gets very personal. Last week, I used the quote from Hudson Taylor that said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. I would add to that today, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies, nor lack satanic opposition. That's what we'll see here. Jesus says in John 15, 20, he told us to prepare for this. He says, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul can say, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2, 3. This is what we are called for. One of the commentators writes, Satan hates a good thing. Hates it. Try it, if you will. Next time you decide, you know, I'm going to be bold for the gospel. This is my role. I'm supposed to be making disciples. So I'm going to go witness to my neighbor. Watch what happens. Or perhaps you seek to reconcile that tough relationship with others. Watch what happens. Or perhaps you try to break the iron grip of pornography, gossip, pride. Name the sin. You will be opposed. And you start to look around and you go, this almost seems satanic. And I go, have you not read the Bible? Of course it's satanic, but it comes in many ways and many means. What do you do at that time when you're opposed at that particular time? Well, we would say you persevere. You stay in the saddle. Now, we don't typically do that, though. We're tempted to do one of two things. Number one, compromise. I said to y'all a while back, the greatest fear of many American Christians is persecution. It shouldn't be our greatest fear. Of course not. Christians are persecuted when they seek to live for Christ. The greater fear is assimilation, and ultimately that's what we see here is compromise. You seek to escape opposition, so you begin to assimilate with the surrounding culture and their ways and means because you don't want to stand out, so you compromise. And the second thing we tend to do is we quit. I'm not saying we walk away from Christ, but it looks very, very similar to compromise. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, what does Paul do when he hits hard times? Listen to what he says. He says, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Did you catch that? The reason why Paul says, I need to stay in Ephesus is not only because there's much opportunity, but there's a closed door. Now, he doesn't say closed door. He says there are many adversaries. Why did you say closed door, Jeff? Because that's what many of us will say when we start to go through adversaries. In difficult times, we're like, well, it must be God's closed door. 
It's not God's closed door. Perhaps the reason why we're having so many adversaries is because it's a wide open door that the Lord wants us to struggle through and persevere by the help only of the Holy Spirit. Don't compromise. Do not quit. When Igor Sikorsky was 12 years old, his parents told him that competent authorities had already proven human flight was impossible. Sikorsky went on to build the first mass-produced helicopter for the United States military. In his American plant, he posted a sign saying the following, according to recognized aerotechnical tests, the bumblebee cannot fly because of the shape and weight of his body in relation to the total wing area. The bumblebee does not know this. <laughs> so he goes ahead and flies anyway. In chapter four, verse, uh, chapters 4 through 6 in Nehemiah, what we're going to see are seven incidents of opposition and perseverance. And today we're going to study four of them. So if you're looking for a, an outline for this text, we would do it by way of the opposition. The first opposition in verses 1 through 6 is ridicule or mocking. Use either term. That's what's going on. Number two, we'll see in verses 7 through 9, threats. They're now threatened by the enemy. In verse 10, we'll see fatigue. It's not the fatigue of God's enemies. It's the fatigue of God's people. They're getting tired and worn out. So what do they do? And then finally, verses 11 through 14, we'll see criticism. Not arising from the enemies of the Jews, not arising from the faithful Jews, but from the unfaithful Jews that are not building the wall. And they'll begin to criticize and finally, verse 15 through 23, we have something called the sword and the trowel. And you say, what is that? Well, you know what a sword is, but a trowel is that which used for laying bricks. And that's what we have here is Nehemiah is going to tell him, you have a sword in one hand and you, and you work with the other. You fight in one, you work the other. And you will see there's a really spiritual analogy to this at the end of the text. So here we go. This is the word of God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Just by way of reminder, Sanballat is the governor of Samaria to the north. He's threatened by a restored Jerusalem, which is what a wall will do around the city. It will restore it and bring it back to health. He also knows that Nehemiah is there by the king's appointment and he hates him for it. You know who else is here by the king's appointment? I'm looking at him. We here are by the king's appointment. According to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, I'm not saying unbelievers know that we are here by God's appointment, but the forces of darkness know that. And certainly we know that before we came to Christ, we were what the Bible calls darkness. Darkness hates light. Next time you talk to somebody about Jesus Christ and you can't figure out why would they not accept this? As a matter of fact, they don't even seem to like me. It's predicted, folks. But we are here by God's appointment, by the king. We've got work to do. And Sanballat hates Nehemiah for it. Verse 2 and 3, here comes the mocking. 
And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubble and burned ones at that? <laughs> Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So, first enemy is ridicule or mocking. One of the commentators says, this is the enemy's oldest weapon. Just look at the garden. And in the form of ridicule, it needs no factual ammunition, not even an argument. So he begins to just question him. First off, what are these feeble Jews doing? Feeble, it's, uh, it's from that Hebrew root word mel, and it describes a plant fading or dying. That's what he's describing these Jews. That's the first way that he mocks them. He mocks their ability. Remember, some of these builders are priests, perfumers, women. They don't know anything about building. So he mocks them. He mocks their ability. The second thing he mocks is their motivation. He says, are they going to restore it for themselves? So he's, he's going to remove God from the situation. He goes, look at them. They're just, they're just self-seeking. That's all they're doing. He questions their motivation. He mocks their motivation. Number three, he mocks their beliefs. He, he says this, will they sacrifice? Now, what does that mean? Does, it could mean, will they sacrifice at that place, but that doesn't really square. He's not referring to the temple. No, uh, Another one of the commentators quotes, and I think this is probably right. He's saying, these fanatics, are they going to pray the wall up? Is that what it is? If they just sacrifice, then here comes the wall. And he's mocking their beliefs in the Lord. Number four, he mocks their intelligence. Will they finish up in a day? These folks are so ignorant. They think they can get this done. And number five, he mocks their building materials. Now, this is interesting. He says, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Question, are these ancient Jews using burnt stones to rebuild the wall? It's a question worth asking. And burnt stones aren't near as strong as those that have not been eroded by fire. We don't know. My guess is perhaps, yeah, some of it that were burnt stones. Remember, they've only got so much material to use, and they don't build the wall as much as they rebuild it, so I'm certain they use some stones that were charred. And, you know, that gives us encouragement today, does it not? Figuratively, stones in the Bible can also be symbols for people. As the Lord breathes new life into stone, so he breathes new life into us, destroyed by our own sin. See, remember, Jesus Christ is a carpenter by trade. Uh, many believe that as a carpenter, he works with wood, and certainly he would have, and yet at that particular time period, carpenters work with wood and stone. Uh, the term used in the New Testament, it can be translated as, is this the carpenter's son? Or it can also be translated, is this, is this the craftsman's son? Because we know that many of the buildings and houses in Jerusalem and throughout Israel are not just made of wood, but also stone. 
So we imagine, not just imagine, but we can tell that uh, ancient carpenters also built with wood and with stone. They were kind of a carpenter and wood, or rather stonemason as well. 1 Peter 2.5 refers to us, we are like living stones built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does Jesus call himself? The stone the builders rejected, and yet only we find out that he is the chief, the cornerstone. Interesting, is it not? So they're questioning what they're using And finally, we have Tobiah, who's the Ammonite leader, and he jumps in and he says, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. So he's mocking their workmanship. It's shoddy. I mean, how big is this wall going to be? Funny, we find out the wall when it was finished was actually nine foot thick. So that would be an awfully large fox to knock over that one. So they're mocking them. This is a ridicule. (sighs) Question. Are believers ever mocked? Have you ever been mocked or ridiculed for your beliefs? John 16 verse, uh, talks, uh, verse 18 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me because before it hated you, Jesus says. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. When Paul is making his defense before Festus, uh, in the middle of his defense, Festus interrupts him. And he says with a loud voice, intentionally interrupting him, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. How would we say it today? Paul, you're an idiot. I don't care all the degrees you've got, you're, you're an idiot. It reminds me in 2019, uh, we had that famous trial or perhaps infamous trial in Dallas with Amber Geiger, police officer. She had killed both of them, Gene. It's a long story. You can, if you've forgotten it, look it up on your own. But what was so terrible about that incident was either she meant to or she didn't mean to. There was some big debate going on. I'm not going to dive into that, but the point of it is, is that she killed this, this guy. She didn't, she didn't. It was shocking. But what was really the most encouraging thing about that whole incident was his brother, Brant Jean, getting up on the stand, and he's looking at this woman that has killed his brother, and he says, I forgive you. I think giving your life to Christ is the best thing both of them would want you to do. And then he looks up at the judge, and he says, can I, can I give her a hug, please? Folks, society doesn't know what to do with that. That's the love of Christ. They don't know how to, how to even process that. And so what you heard many saying is that, man, this, is, this is guy is weak. I heard people saying, this can't be right. What's he doing? And thankfully, believers were saying, this is, this is Christ-like. This is phenomenal. The strongest guy in the courtroom that day was, was him. But the world doesn't look at believers this way, by and large. Unless God should give some sort of provenient grace, they don't. They ridicule us. And so what does Nehemiah do? He gives them to God. Verse 
4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah hands them over to God. Now, you should really grasp what he's actually saying here. Do not blot their sin out. If God doesn't blot their sin out, they go to hell. So what is he saying? Don't cover their sins. Divine justice. He's praying that God's vengeance would fall on them. Now, this is what is called imprecatory prayers. Um, Imprecatory, it means, in essence, cursing prayers. Praying that God would curse the person. It's found in the Psalms. I'll give you one of them. Psalm 58, verse 6. Oh God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. He's referring to people his, that are going against him. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who, great writer, and very quotable. Not always the best theologian, and you need to know that. Some people go, oh, you can't say that. It's true. I can give you documentation, but he... I like the guy. But C.S. Lewis, he called these sort of imprecatory prayers, or also known as imprecatory psalms, because there's many in the New Testament, or the Old Testament. He calls them terrible, contemptible. Like, this can't be good. This can't be right. But there's a problem, Christian. There's 14 psalms that are imprecatory psalms. That means basically 10% of the psalms are imprecatory. We have to deal with that, do we not? We can't just put it under the rug and we don't share those with unbelievers. No. Are these prayers terrible and contemptible? Let me give you a couple of biblical foundations for imprecatory prayers. Number one, they're based upon God's promise. God's promise. Remember God, when he meets up with Abraham, he he says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. He's not just referring to Abraham. He's referring to Abraham's descendants. And you say, yeah, that's the Jews. Yeah, and that's also us. By faith, we are also children of Abraham. We see that Jesus appears before Saul in Acts 9, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, he's not going, I didn't persecute you. No, he says, who are you? You see, even then, Saul knew that there was a, there was a binding together to become one in God and man, in God and his people. Remember, what is marriage? It's a picture of, of Christ and the church. To become one. So to persecute one is to persecute the other. So God's promise is very clear. You don't mess with God's people. God will curse them. So imprecatory prayer would make a little sense there, would it not? And let me give you another uh, Part of the equation is God's purpose. What is, what is Nehemiah calling for? What is the psalmist calling for in his imprecatory psalms? It's a call for God to judge those who oppose his work and his kingdom. Nehemiah is saying, Lord, this is your work. Come defend your work. And so this is not Nehemiah's personal revenge. Nehemiah is calling for God to have revenge. And some of you, if I haven't won you over to this point, you might say, yeah, but that really contradicts the New Testament. 
I mean, we're supposed to pray for our enemies, love our enemies. How does that fit in with imprecatory prayers? Glad you asked. Romans 12, verse 19 and 20, perhaps might be what you're thinking of, where it says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And at this point, you go, see, New Testament disagrees. There's a problem. You see, that passage I just read to you comes straight out of Deuteronomy 32, 35 and Proverbs 25, 21, and 22. It's also in the Old Testament as well that we are supposed to care for our enemies. So how does that work? We pray against them, but we also care for them. Well, let me give you more New Testament passages before I answer that. Matthew 23, remember Jesus pronounces seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 23, 15, he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Folks, that doesn't sound like meek and mild Jesus. And yet that is the same one and the same. Galatians 1, 9, Paul's dealing with the Judaizers. Do you remember what they were doing? They were coming in and saying, you're saved by faith alone, but the men have got to be circumcised. And what does Paul say about it by inspiration of the Spirit? He says, verse 9 of Galatians 1, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. The term means anathema, forever condemned. It's an imprecatory verse. And finally, Revelation 6.10, even in the future, the people of God, after they have, um, they've basically been killed and their, their spirits are up in heaven, he says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So what do you do with all this? Let me try to bring it back here. J.I. Packer, who is a 20th century theologian, he says it like this, the principles of the sort of imprecatory prayer are stated in Psalm 139, verse 21 and 22, where the psalmist says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. How does that square with loving your enemies? Well, he says this, the nearer we come to the state of mind, which is a spinoff from the desire that God's will be done, his kingdom come, his name be hallowed and glorified, the less problem shall we have with vengeance prayers. See, at this point, I'm looking at a congregation. Some of you go, I really have a problem with God's vengeance. Just don't like it. I love his mercy. I'm just not that crazy about his vengeance. Well, I get your point, and certainly I'm more drawn to his mercy as well, but be careful. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, in essence of this, it's, it's not so much that you love God's mercy, you just don't care about his righteousness. That's your issue with God's justice. Is God's righteousness, is at play here? And you don't care as much about it. Hmm. I, I like the way Jay Adams said it. Jay Adams was a uh, Presbyterian theologian of the 20th century, and he writes this. As Christians, we should pray that God would destroy our enemies by converting them. They're no longer God's enemies at that point. But if he so chooses, God may also destroy them by pouring out his wrath on them. 
as he will surely do at the final judgment if they have not repented of their rebellion against him. So either way, destroy your enemy, Lord, by, by converting him or destroy your enemy by condemning in hell, which is what you call for. So to give you a real-life example, Osama bin Laden, I think, would be a good example of this. Uh, when he was on the run, we knew that he had killed thousands of Americans. He was on the uh, run for many years. And then 2011, the Navy SEALs searched him out, and they, they finally caught him. But I hope somewhere during 2001 to 2011, you prayed. I bet many of you did. Lord, destroy this one. Seek him out and destroy him. And yet I the hope at the same time you prayed, Lord, give him repentance. Save his soul. If you should so do that before he dies, that we could see him in heaven. Because I myself would be a terrorist if it weren't for God. Amen? So we do both. It's a precatory psalms, and precatory prayers. Continue to struggle well through that. Uh, remember, we're called to love all of the Lord, not just his mercy, not the parts that we just, you know, benefit us, but also love, we love you for your justice, God. I don't fully understand it because I'm a big sinner, and that's part of my reason we don't fully understand it at all. Verse 6, so we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Note this, the ridicule and mocking has failed. They're going to go with something else. Verse 7 and 8, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Here we see the enemies of the south, which are the Arabs, the enemies of the east, which are the Ammonites. We already know the enemies of the north are the Samaritans. But notice here, we have another group, the Ashdodites. I told you last time that the enemies to the west, well, there is no west. There's the Mediterranean Sea. And some of you were quick to go, wait a second. Jerusalem is, is landlocked, so there must be somebody to the west. Yeah, it's called the Philistines. And it, by this time, they're called the Ashdodites because Ashdod was one of the larger cities. Uh, and after the Assyrians came in and destroyed the Philistines, they just called that area Ashdod. So they really are surrounded on every side. And all of them conspired together to fight against Jerusalem. So the second enemy we see here are threats. They begin to threaten them. It wasn't enough that we made fun of them, but now we are threatening them. Does this happen to believers that we are ever threatened? Some of you have had jobs before that you are nervous to say what you believe about Christianity because you know that that could adversely affect you. I know two people that are friends of ours who have been written up for witnessing at work. Written up. Now, just to be clear, Christians should be the best workers. We should be the best. So I would not, I would discourage you from going and witnessing to your neighbors when you're not working. <laughs> you need to be the best worker there. And yet at the same time, get fired for the glory of Jesus. Be wise as serpents. But if you get fired, I mean, you could rejoice that you have been counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. Now, please don't text me this week and say, I just got fired for witnessing. I listened to you. I'll say I'm sorry. 
Did you listen to what I said about being wise as serpents? Certainly. Wise as serpents and innocent as doves is the pattern that we should follow. But by all means, um, the Lord should, should call you to witness, and he has, take opportunity. I mean, I wouldn't do it on the clock, but you definitely want to make sure and see your whatever area you're in, this is where God has made me by king's appointment to make disciples. It might be in the house. It might be away from the house. Wherever it is, this is the place. So they try threats. If they're going to go further with this. What does Nehemiah do to, to uh, fight them in this? He says, verse 9, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. What does Nehemiah do? He watches and he prays. He watches by putting out a guard and we pray. This sounds so, so familiar, does it not? Matthew 26, 41, Jesus says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let me ask you, believer, do, do, you, do you watch? You keeping an eye out, not only for the devil who, who seeks to, to destroy you like a roaring lion, but are you watching? Are you watching circumspectly? As I heard somebody say the other day, are we listening to ourselves or are we talking to ourselves? Psalm 42, David is talking to himself. Why are you so disturbed, soul? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Too many of us are just listening to ourselves. We should be talking to ourselves and talking to ourselves what the scripture says. Are we watching? Are we praying? That's what Nehemiah is, is doing even before Christ gave that command. Verse 10, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Here's enemy number three. It's called fatigue. Fatigue. These folks are worn out. They've been building every day. They're not builders, by and large. Um, and yet, what's interesting about verse 10, if you were to read it in the Hebrew, Hebrew, it's a poetic form. It seems like they had, they had come up with a sad poem or a sort of a mantra, work song to sing, and it gets in your head. Now, Reading the Hebrew to you wouldn't help because Hebrew poems don't rhyme. But for our sake, it would be something like this in verse 10. The strength of those bearing is failing. The rubble is much too vast. And by ourselves, we cannot rebuild. Our human strength is past. The strength of those bearing is failing. The rubble is much too fast. And by ourselves, we cannot rebuild. Our human strength is past. They were saying this over and over and over again. Doesn't that make you... Just want to build a wall? <laughs> no. Beware, Christian. Proverbs 24.10 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Galatians 6.9 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Or as some of the translations say, grow weary. Let me tell you the problem with being worn out, we make really bad decisions, incredibly. The number of folks here perhaps that have had a really bad day at work and you're tired and you decide to quit your job without having another job. 
Beware. If you're not getting along with your spouse, do not be so quick to throw in the towel. Don't do that. When we get tired, we make really, really bad decisions. And these people are starting to say, this isn't worth it. I'm tired. And they're quitting. They're beginning to consider quitting due to the fatigue. Verse 11 and 12, the last enemy of the day. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. There's that more of threatening. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions, and they said to us 10 times. Now, whether they said actually 10 times, or it's like when we say, you've said that to me 10 times, it's, it's metaphorical for many times. Um, and what did they say? You must return to us. This is enemy number four. We'll call it criticism. These Jews that came among them weren't even working. They're coming from other parts of Israel, and they're just scared. And they're telling the people that had come to Jerusalem, like the people of Jericho that came there to work, you need to get back home. It's been too long. You need to come back home now. So they're scared. They complain. They criticize. Chuck Swindoll puts it this way, and I think he's right. He says, critics run with critics. Critical people tend to run together, and I think he, I think he may be right overall on that. But th- at this point, you should ask yourself as a believer, knowing the Bible, can't criticism be good? I mean, certainly, Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And so if we are the Jews building the wall, we should ask ourselves this question in order to help decipher between good and bad criticism. There is a godly criticism, and then there's a really sinful one as well. These three questions have been helpful for me. Number one, does this criticism line up with Scripture? It's always the first question. Does this one line up with Scripture? They have something called a carpenter square for those people in here that build things, and you put the square on the wall, it's a triangle, and you can tell if you're, if you're square or not. What is the carpenter square in the Christian life? It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. So a guy like William Wilberforce in the 19th century is having to deal with something. He's, he's a British lawmaker, and he really hates slavery, and he is an abolitionist. And you had Christians come to him and say, wait a second, the Bible doesn't condemn slavery. And he would say, really? And they would say, sure, Abraham had slaves. I mean, the Colossian church met in the home of Philemon, who owned slaves. Philemon had a, had a, had a, uh, a slave named Onesimus. Paul never says directly, set him free. He didn't use that, those words. He certainly intimated that. He didn't command it. And so William Wilberforce has to go, wait a second. What does the Bible say? As compared to the certain practice of the 19th century slavery, what he would say would be this. Number one, the problem with slavery now, it's race-based slavery. Since the 1650s in the West, it's race-based for black people. And yet before then, it was, could be European, Indian, whatever. Uh, could be slaves, but it changed. So he said, that doesn't line up with the Bible. And number two, what we see is a slave cannot purchase his freedom. 
by the time of the 1900s, or rather 1800s. In many parts of the West, slave could not purchase his freedom. So that is directly opposed to what, what we see in the slavery of the New Testament times, or even in the Old Testament. And finally, he would say, and by the way, am I really loving my neighbor as myself if I'm enslaving him? And so when he had Christians come to him and be critical of his view, he would go back to Scripture. Number two, another question, is the person criticizing me normally critical and negative? Some people may think that's your spiritual gift, to be critical. Well, Matthew 7 condemns this, does it not? We shouldn't be having a telephone pole in our eye and look at the person who has a splinter in his eye and say, let me get that thing. There is a critical form of judgmentalism that's, that's not good. And by the way, I will also give you a caveat with that, though. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. Sometimes the critical person actually is right. They may not be saying it lovingly. They, may not, they might be very critical about other things. And so what do you do at that point? I think you pray. Lord, show me. They, they might be handling this completely wrong, but maybe, maybe they're right. So at times, we should pray, certainly. And number three, have I heard the same criticism from other people? For some of you, what's going on in your head right now is ding, 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 ding. Like, there's a lot of people that are saying the same thing. How strange. And it happens over a few years, but they all seem to be saying the same thing about me. Maybe they're all seeing it wrong, but I don't think so. I like the old Yiddish proverb that says this, if one man calls you a donkey, pay him no mind. If two men call you a donkey, go buy a saddle. <laughs> Continuing on, verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I station the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. We're tackling a lot of issues today. I think you'll see in this passage, all these theological themes keep coming up. And one of the themes that keeps coming up, well, another one is self-defense. Is it biblical to defend yourself? Some would say no. And you always want to go back to what does the Bible say? Jesus, I think, answers this question in Luke 22, verse 35 through 38, when Christ said to his Apostles, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, that can be applied in two different ways. But first off, just the, just the picture is this. Jesus knows I'm about to go to the cross. And what's going to happen to y'all then? It's going to get worse. So you better take your money with you. Uh, you. You better take your knapsack. And he seems to be saying, if you don't have a sword, you, you should buy one. Uh, two different options, a way to handle this. Some would say, he's, what he's saying is he's rebuking them when they say, here's two swords. And he goes, that's enough. That's enough of this talk. Well, I'm not saying that at all. And some people would point and say, well, see, Jesus got onto Peter for bringing out the sword and whacking the high priest's servant's ear off, although I don't think he was going for that. But 
That would be amazing if he did, but he wasn't. Peter was a fisherman, and he was probably trying to chop his head off. Um, Well, and yet at the same time, I would push back on that and say, yes, Jesus told them I'm going to the cross. Um, The idea is don't, don't take off. Don't kill these people. I think it's telling, I think what he's saying in the Greek, it's actually a little clearer. He's saying the word adequate. That's adequate. I think he's saying what you have is enough to protect you. So we need to be careful with this believers, especially believing Texans. We're perhaps too easy to brandish uh, firearms and things of this nature. But I think the point of it is, is he's saying you need to protect yourselves. And he's, he's doing that. He's not only protect yourselves, but protect your families. Verse 14, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials, to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Don't be afraid. When he says, remember the Lord, many times, especially in the Old Testament where he says, remember the Lord, it's always done with, there's an action for you to take now. Uh, when Hannah prayed for a son, it says the Lord remembered her and gave her a son. And Nehemiah likewise is using that same terminology. Remember the Lord and fight for your brothers. So there's a task to do as you remember the Lord and his promises and all he has done. Go defend your family. Don't let these people destroy this fence, this wall. Verse 15 through 18, when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leader stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapons with the other. And each of us, each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Here we have two groups of people. One are the builders, and the builders are supposed to keep building with their trowel and have their sword by their side. The other group of people are not builders. They're more what we'll call them carriers, carriers. They are removing the rubble the collected material, and they're supposed to, from here on out, carry a sword in their hand. Why? Because they're going to be further away from the wall, and they're much more uh, possible that they could get hurt. They traveled further. Certainly, the spiritual analogies here are fantastic. I hope you see them in Ephesians 6. We are supposed to have the sword of the Spirit, the shield of shield of faith, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation. This is the way we're supposed to go out to battle. Problem is, is a lot of it just throw the sword down before we go out. And we take the sword with us. And they had their sword with them as well. Finally, verse 19 through 23. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor any servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes each kept his weapon at his right hand. 
Now, the trumpet is not the trumpet with valves. It's the shofar here. The shofar, it was a ram's horn to muster an army, to fight. Uh, and he, Nehemiah is saying, I need for you all to start spending the night in Jerusalem and staying awake. So talk about an 80-hour a week. They weren't sleeping. And did you catch who is with them? Nehemiah is. And what does he say is our God will fight for us. Now, I can't get in Nehemiah's mind, but I can almost guarantee you he's thinking of Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. So ladies and gentlemen, we have mocking, threats, fatigue, criticism, or the way Paul puts it in Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is par for the course, opposition. The next time you decide, I'm gonna serve the Lord, bank on it. Do not be surprised, Peter says, that the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing is though some strange thing were happening to you. John Huss, one of my favorites in church history, he's a Czech reformer 100 years before the Reformation. He was arrested and told he would be burned at the stake for his faith. He had the audacity to say a person is saved by faith alone and Christ alone, and he was going to be killed for that. He was told he would be burned when they arrested him. And so what he did, he purposefully practiced holding his hand over fire to prepare for the event. He, uh, he burned himself in preparation, wanting to be faithful to the end. And on July 6, 1415, after the wood was stacked up to Huss's neck, the Duke of Bavaria asked him regarding his preaching if he would like to recount that. Um, Huss replied, in the truth of the gospel which I preached, I die willingly and joyfully today. The fire was lit and Huss died, catch this, while singing. Singing, the son of the living God, have mercy on me. And he died. It was excruciating. It was perhaps five, ten minutes, maybe less, maybe more. But if you're an unbeliever today, let me tell you what awaits your future. Three great events. Hades, the final judgment, and then finally to be transferred to the lake of fire where you will be forever, away from the Lord. I've got to be careful not to somehow tell you of Jesus' salvation as some sort of fire insurance. It's not trusting in some words about Jesus because, oh, you don't want to go to hell. No, to be a believer in Jesus is now this, you are now a shepherd, rather following the great shepherd. He's yours, you're his, to become one. So my encouragement is come to him today, trusting him. If you're a believer, my encouragement is take your place on the wall, preserve, persevere under opposition, knowing that it's the Holy Spirit doing it in you and through you and even in spite of you. The Lord is on your side. Let's build. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and pray that you would help us, that we would be people that would be builders, ultimately knowing that we don't build. It's the work of God that builds his kingdom. Help us, Father, that we would be able to get out on the wall, whatever, whatever wall you call us to, be that work or home, be it a particular job or school, and help us to be about the work of your work 
knowing the Holy Spirit is doing it through us. We've got much to do, and yet, Lord, you're building your kingdom. We look forward to you bringing it here to this earth soon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.